Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to TruthQuest Podcast. This is our Q&A where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so we can truly know what to believe. Making sure that we put God, God's law, or God's book, the, the Scriptures, on the highest authority, sola scriptura, as it were. We do these Q&As every Wednesday and Thursday. They go out on Facebook and YouTube, basically, and uh, you can ask questions through the comment section. If you have questions about the Bible, about Christian living, about the nuances that are in the Bible, because the Bible's full of them, uh, then go ahead and ask them apologetics. Uh, It's good to see you guys uh, that are on here. Hopefully, um, the Lord will bless you by the time you spend here today. Our first question comes from Victor at the end of our Q&A last week. And Victor had asked a question about the nation of Israel and their policy to expand in the land and to take over land, like in the West Bank and in, um, in East Jerusalem and said that it reminded him of so many nations in the past referring to uh, the colonization of the world taking over indigenous people. Uh, so first of all, I will say to that, uh, and I want to answer this in a couple of different ways. First of all, colonization wasn't all bad. I know that there's been a lot of rewriting of history, and there are certainly bad things that colonization and those that were colonizing did. But they did bring expansion of hospitals, of care, of education, and of a, a better source of living and overcoming a lot of the world that was full of cannibalism uh, can be a a good part of the world anyway that was given over to cannibalism was fought off by colonization and uh, this happened all the way up into the 1800s but you can't say that's what's going on in Israel this battle over Israel has not been going on for thousands of years you go back to the land of Israel being under Canaanite control why the children of Israel were in Egypt Egypt. And then Moses led them out and Joshua led them in. And we have archaeological evidence back to the days of Joshua in the form of a cursed tablet that was found that dated back to his time that had the name of Yahweh in it three times. And so we know, uh, and it's written in that Hebrew, uh, Hebrew, not Hebrew, but Hebrew from that time. We also have archaeological evidence that David was a real king. It was popular to say in the 50s and 60s that David was not a real king, that he was mythological. But then he come to find out they found the Dan stone, which actually mentioned the kingdom of Israel. And then they found other stones as well, uh, the Moabite stone, uh, the Sennacherib Sennacherib stones uh, in uh, Nineveh where they discovered that spoke of the kingdom of Israel. So the Bible had it right all along. And so Israel was in the land under the kings for hundreds of years. And then the divided kingdom of Israel, the, the, the Israel, Israel and Judah, Israel was taken by the Assyrians and the northern kingdom of Judah was taken, or the southern kingdom of Judah was taken by the Babylonians. The Babylonians were conquered by the Persians and then um, King Artaxerxes allowed them to go back and build, rebuild their temple, rebuild the walls around Jerusalem. Ezra and Nehemiah rebuilt the walls. Ezra rebuilt the temple. And they were once again in the land for hundreds of years. But they didn't really occupy the land. They were occupied by the Greeks who allowed them to kind of rule autonomously. Then by the Romans 
And we just got to go back to the time of Jesus to see how the Romans influenced the area. So the Greeks conquered the Persians, the, the Romans conquered Greece, and they really it was handed over in, in, in different in different sections in different ways. But eventually the land was conquered by the Romans and then destroyed. Jerusalem was destroyed. And over the next 2,000 years would go back and forth between different parties. Uh, the, the, one of the last would be the Crusaders. And then the Ottomans defeated them. And the Ottomans held the land for a few hundred years. And the Ottomans called the land Palestine. That's where we get Palestinians from, the Ottomans holding this land, Palestine. Uh, when uh, Palestine sided with a, with a losing side in World War I, the British took over the area that had been occupied by the Ottomans, and now they controlled it. And the British overpromised. They allowed Jews that were being persecuted around the world to come and to live in Israel. They also promised Jordan, the Hussein family, King Hussein, that they were going to have the entire area. Then they also made other promises to people. Obviously, this set up a conflict. This is where the conflict began with the overpromising of land. When they realized they couldn't do it, in 1947, they gave over the, the land to the UN to figure out how to divide the land. In 1947, the UN came up with a plan, kind of a jigsaw puzzle looking thing, you can look it up, so that Palestine could have their free land and Israel could have their free land. The Palestinians refused to take them up on the offer. They said as long as Israel, uh, the people of Israel were around, then they would not be a nation, but they would wipe them off the face of the earth. Israel declared themselves a nation in, in, in May 14th, 1948, at least in 1948, declared themselves a nation, and immediately war broke out. Egypt, Syria, Jordan, Lebanon, and others attacked Israel. And for nine months, there was a brutal battle called, from the uh, Israeli perspective, the, the War of Independence. And when the UN came in and froze the lines, there, the land had changed hands. Not only had Israel occupied more of the land that was given to the Palestinians, but the Gaza Strip was taken by Egypt. And the West Bank was taken by Jordan. And then in 1967, another war broke out and in 1967, Israel took a good section of what belonged to Egypt and the Gaza Strip and the West Bank that belonged to Jordan and the Golan Heights, which belonged to Syria. And once that war was finished, it settled into an uneasy peace in 1967. In 1973, there was another war that happened. And during this time, Jerusalem came under Israeli control for the very first time. Now, peace has been tenuous since then. Uh, there have been uh, continued desires by the Palestinians to destroy Israel. There have been attempts to make peace by exchanging land. The Gaza Strip was given over to the Palestinians, but they voted in Hamas. That created greater problems. Uh, Israel moved settlements into the West Bank, and when they took over East Jerusalem, they have Jews even to this day moving into East Jerusalem, and that causes problems. There was the first intifada basically in the 90s, the second intifada in the 2000s. Israel built a wall dividing out the Palestinian sections of Israel from the, the Israeli section of Israel, and that caused tensions as well to just build a wall across the land, and the Palestinians are definitely living in a 
in a substandard way compared to Israelis. When you go to Israel and you stay in the Israeli side, it's almost like being in America. But there's tension that can be felt. And uh, Clinton tried to bring a peace accord, uh, which failed. Uh, and there have been, you know, the Oslo Accord, that was the Oslo Accord. There have been other uh, who have tried to bring peace into the region and haven't been able to do it. If you talk to, I've been to Israel many times, and if you talk to people who are there, both Palestinian and Israeli, there's a desire for most of them to have a two-state solution. But then there's the radicals on the radical right, on uh, or the radical um, aspect of Israel and the radical aspect of, of Palestine. Neither of them want the other one around. And so they will continue to attack each other. And it has settled in to an uneasy peace in Israel that cannot last. It doesn't look like it can last. Something is going to take place. We know the Bible talks about a war of a coalition from the north. And today we have Russia and, and Persia together for the very first time in all of history. And the Bible said that what happened, the area of Libya, a lot of these areas are, are Muslim areas that the Bible talks about, Ezekiel 38 and 39. And this war may happen, uh, that may be the next thing on the line uh, for the nation of Israel. But it's not as easy as saying that the, the people of Israel are occupying the land because Israel has been there during World War II. There were six million Jews that were killed, millions more that were displaced, and many of them went over into Israel. Now, Victor had also said that many of the Jews weren't Jewish, and I understand that this is this is a talking point from some people to try to deny citizenships to Jews. Um, but the vast majority of people who claim Jewish heritage do have Jewish heritage and have had the land for a long time. We also know that God says in the last days he's going to make Jerusalem a cup of trembling. And it looks like this is a problem that cannot be solved or needs to be solved by a very brilliant man and it's thought that in Daniel chapter 9, when it says the prince of the people who will destroy Jerusalem, who would be the Romans, and this prince will make a covenant with many for one week. And that one week is a week of years, seven years, which is the tribulation period, because in the middle of it, he will bring an abomination that makes desolation. And Jesus talked about that. That's um, first Thessalonians talked about that. So this is the last day. So the Antichrist makes a peace treaty looking to have solved the Palestinian-Israeli conflict uh, that is in that is in Israel. Now, as as Christians, we have a connection to the Jews, the Jewish people, to Israel, because we are Judea Christianity. And so we have a connection there. But that doesn't mean that we believe that everything Israel does now is right. God definitely restored the land, restored the people to the land, promised that that was going to happen, and then did it. And it came to pass, even as I said, the nation being born again in a day. But they have yet to be restored spiritually and receive Jesus as their Messiah. This will happen during the day of the Lord. Behold, it is a great day, it says in Jeremiah 37, and all of Israel, it is a time of Jacob's trouble, and all of Israel shall be saved out of it. Another promise from Romans 11, 25, and 26, that all of Israel will be saved. A blindness in part has happened to them now. God doesn't want us to be ignorant about it, but they are all going to be saved. They aren't saved by taking over the land. Zion nationalism and Palestinian nationalism doesn't help. 
and it's not taking over the land. They're saved by Jesus. Another part of this, which is interesting, is that uh, there's a there's a, a significant group within the Palestinian community who are Christians. So you've got Palestinian Christians and Palestinian Muslims that are fighting on the same side. Also, there's one Palestinian government in Gaza and another Palestinian government in the West Bank that runs these areas. And these two fight against one another, don't get along with each other as well. So the Antichrist seems to come and to bring it all together. Uh, and so I would just be, I would be leery of trying to paint one side as being bad and the other side as being good. This is a conflict that's been around a long time. We know that God has given Israel the land and promised to give it to his descendants. Uh, we know that the Palestinians are not a continuation of the Philistines, as some people say. That's just not true. The Philistines were a, uh, were a European people that came from the islands probably around Greece. And they were a coastal people. They were a people that lived on that lived on the waters. They were a completely different people. And so when people say that, it's just they're just making a connection because Philistines sound like Palestinians. They don't. Uh, the people that were there were a smaller group of people who were there during the Ottoman Empire when it was called Palestine. And uh, then and there was also a small group of Jews that lived there too, under the Ottoman Empire. There were Jews, Christians, and Palestinians who lived there. And then there's, a, there's land purchases that happened and uh, were sold to Jews during the Zionist national movement that would complicate everything. So now, I just, I just gave a lot of information in a short amount of time, but the statement that they are like others that are taking over the world uh, in, a, in just trying to occupy the world is kind of misleading on a few areas. It's misleading on what colonization was and what colonization did. We're talking about um, Britain and France and Spain during the time of colonization. And it's a misrepresentation of what's going on today in Israel and overlooking both sides. There are things that the Palestinians do we do not agree with. There are things that Israel does we don't agree with. We don't agree with both sides. But we do believe that God has promised Israel the land according to the scriptures and that God has restored them and is bringing them back in. Um, they're they're going to be made a couple of trembling and I think that this is part of it. All right, so thank you very much for your question. Uh, that was a, a long answer to a question we had at the end of our study last week. Uh, good to see you guys here. Uh, we have a question from Stephen, Stephen B79. Uh, it says, uh, Revelation 19, 7 through 9, try to prove the pre-trib rapture to some using the marriage supper of the Lamb. They ask, what about those that are still alive on the earth that haven't died? Um, any alive still? Uh, so, um, let's just go ahead and take a look at that passage. Uh, Revelation 19. I'll say why I'm I'm finding it that I've never used. I I believe in the pre-trib rapture. I believe clearly the Bible teaches it. Uh, and I think you've got a lot of problems to, what, what to do with a lot of passages if you don't believe in the, the pre-trib rapture. And um, But I have never tried to use the marriage supper of the Lamb as proof of the pre-trib rapture. I understand that people believe that it happens during the time of the tribulation period. So let me get to verses 6 and 7 here. And let's take a look at it. All right. So, let's go ahead and take a look at this. 
So this is Revelation 19, 6 to 7. And I heard, as it were, a voice of a great multitude, as a sound of many waters, and as a sound of many thunders, singing, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice in Him. Give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His wife has made herself ready. And to her was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean, bright, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. All right, so um, the marriage supper of the Lamb because the bride's been ready. And when exactly does this take place? Does it take place near the end of the tribulation period? Does it take place after the tribulation period? And these are some of the questions that need to be asked. Um, in the first part of uh, in Revelation 19, you have uh, heaven exalting itself over the destruction of Babylon. Then you have the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then after the marriage supper of the Lamb, uh, you have Christ returning on, on, on his white horse. So it would be thought that it would be that it would happen right before he returned. Um, what about those that are alive on the earth who are, are still, you know, part of the bride that, that weren't part of the marriage supper of the Lamb? If there were people who were alive, could they not be part of the marriage supper of the Lamb? And I, I've never, as I said, I've never tried to use this to prove. Um, I'm not even familiar with the argument of how it's used to prove the pre-trib rapture. Um, maybe because people say there has to be time for the marriage supper of the Lamb and for the judgment of people and that this happens during the seven-year period. Um, I, I don't know how long those things would take, um, but um, maybe you can give some clarification and a follow-up exactly how, uh, how, why the argument is made, if you can do it in a brief way. If not, I'll take time to look it up later on and we'll deal with it at another time. All right, Stephen, thank you. Um, we have a question from Melissa Cadman. Melissa says, question, is playing the stock market or playing the lottery a sin? Um, okay, so first of all, I hope you're not playing the stock market. I think that there is good investment that could be made in the stock market. And the stock market overall has gone up over time. I mean, it's had drops, right? But overall, it goes up. Now, it may have a huge crash right in the future, and, and, and uh, who knows? Um, but what you're doing is you're investing in companies. And when you pick out good companies to invest in, uh, then they're going to give you a smaller return. If you, if you take a risk and you're more risky, you can, you can increase your returns, but it's more risky. Um, and so I don't think having money in the stock market is in any way, shape, or form a sin. All right? Um, playing the, is playing the lottery a sin? Um, it depends on how it's played, okay? If, um, if, if someone is buying a lottery ticket for the love of money, because the Bible says that the love of money is the root of all sin, and many have been shipwrecked by it. And if you're investing in the stock market for the love of money, it's wrong too. But a lottery can be purchased for what? Is it still a dollar? I don't know. Um, and someone give, puts a dollar in on hopes to make hundreds of millions of dollars. And people that have won the lottery have been proven to lose 
the money. They just don't have a good sense of actually making the money or maybe a value of what it is. And very few actually hold on to the money. There are several articles that are written about people who wish they would have never won it. Because you get, you know, people coming out of the woodwork that are asking for money. Um, they People just end up not being able to handle even that volume of money and they end up losing it all or even being more in debt uh, when they're done than before and it can be brutal. Um, so the Bible talks about ill-gotten gain and many have connected that to gambling. Uh, if a person were to spend a dollar on the lottery, I think, I can't think of any passage of the Bible that would say that that person is in sin. Now, if the person overextends, puts on his credit card $3,000 worth of of lottery tickets to try to win, and then he's going to lose that money because the lottery is, the, the numbers even at that point, they end up losing the money. The same thing is true with casinos and gambling. Casinos, everything in a casino is way towards the casino. And if a person goes in and, and, and gambles a reasonable amount, does the Bible ever say that's sin? If a person goes in and loses the, the food money, obviously they are not being wise and they are, are, are not being good stewards of what was given to them by God. And I think that that would be where the argument would come in. Um, so, yeah, your motives come for both of these come into play. Is your motive to just because you have the, a love of money? Um, if you if you don't invest your money anywhere, like to so go back to the stock market for a moment. If you don't invest your money anywhere, then inflation is going to eat it up. So you've got to try to get it into something that can hold that value. Let's just let's just say it's a house that over thirty years you buy a house. And now you have value that's in a home. Uh, Is that sin? You've invested in a home. Or if you invest in, um, there's there's other investment vehicles that you can have. And so there is wisdom and being a good steward and making sure that you're handling finances well. Um, I, I would not encourage anyone to play the stock market or to have any significant amount of money, but is buying a lottery ticket sin? Is gambling a reasonable amount of money sin? Um, I don't know of a scripture, and I may be wrong. You guys bring it up. Put the, put the word follow-up on it, and give me a passage that we can take a look at, and we can talk a little bit more about it. Um, ill-gotten gain is often talked about that way, but ill-gotten gain, I think, is stealing. Um, it's... Um, it's um, charging people too much interest. It's taking, it's getting money in the wrong way, which a lot of businesses end up doing today anyway. All right. So thank you very much, um, Melissa. And if I didn't answer all those questions, you can give me a follow-up. All right. Um, Let's see. We have a question from Brandon. Brandon, actually. Brandon. Uh, I am sure it doesn't, but does the scriptures indicate that Christ had to leave both father and mother to be joined to the church, Ephesians 5, 31 and 32. Yeah, there's nothing, there's nothing that would indicate that he left father and mother to be joined to the church. Um, the, there are, there is 
a false teaching that there is a mother in heaven. And I don't know if this is connected to that. I don't know where, where the argument would, would come from, um, Brandon, for this. But there's absolutely nothing in Scripture uh, that would talk about that. All right? Um, I'm trying to think of the tense of the Holy Spirit. Uh, I think the, the tense of the Holy Spirit can be in the feminine sometimes, and so people have tried to make that argument. Um, but that's that's beyond what I can answer just off the top of my head. I, I need to spend some time really looking into it. And I have before, but it's been a long time since I've done it. But I can be, uh, I can be relatively, I can be positive that Christ did not have to leave father and mother. There is no heavenly mother in Scripture. Um, and remember, the Bible says that all Scripture is given by the inspiration of God for reproof, for correction, for doctrine, that the man of God could be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That means the Bible gives us everything we need to be in a right relationship with God. So the Bible's not going to leave out something like there's a mother in heaven that Jesus had to leave. Okay? So that's um, rooted in a lot of other different things that are, are not biblical at all. So we have a question from Jari. What do you think happens to those um, unconnected, uncontacted tribes for thousands of years living in cannibalism before colonization when they died? Heaven, hell, why were they allowed to live like this? Um, so your last question, um, why were they allowed to live like this? hypothetical questions like that, Jari, are just really hard to answer. But God gave men choice. And giving men, let me go ahead and lower this down here for a minute, um, giving men a real, genuine choice to follow him, some would choose evil. And there had to be a genuine choice. And people had, they could live for God or they could live for themselves. And out of living for God, man became more and more evil. And man has mistreated man over the years. And cannibalism in the different cultures where it was, was just a particular evil that was out there. And um, so your second question, why were they allowed to live like this? Because of, of choice. Look at, look at all the evil that people have done. Why, why has God allowed it? Because God gave men choice. And out of that choice has come a lot of evils uh, that are in the world today. Um, what do you think happens to those uncontacted tribes, uncontacted tribes? I think that God gave light to everyone and God gave, and this is, goes back to Romans 1, that God gave light to everyone and that God has given a knowledge of himself inside of us. And I think that God will judge people based on how they receive the light. I don't know how many, how many that will be. Um, I'm not saying they're not saved by Jesus Christ because they are. I'm thinking of like Abraham who believed and was counted him righteousness. And it was a counter righteousness because of the work of Christ on the cross. But Abraham never heard the name of Jesus and was able to be saved. And um, so there's a certain light that's given and a certain way in which people respond. And is it possible that people could respond in a right way and that God would find them and allow them to be able to go into heaven? Um, we, we have a video on this. By the way, we do have a video on Israel and on all the passages that promise that God was going to restore them as a nation. So if you just look up on our, our YouTube page, um, the restoration of the nation of Israel, there's quite a few videos that will come up, but one whole one for that. And for this, Jari, um, what happens to those who never believe? If you look that up on our YouTube page as well, um, then I have a whole study where I go into these scriptures and, and what they mean and... Um, how God gives a certain light 
and creation to everyone. And um, we're going to study Romans not too far from now. And so we'll be getting into that particular, those particular arguments again um, as we take a look at, um, at that question. All right, Jari, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Um, we have a question from Victor again. So, Victor, uh, this your question I answered very be- in the very beginning of this. Um, he says, that's exactly what I was thinking and seeing happening. Great information, Pastor. Thank you, Victor. I appreciate that. Um, it is certainly a very complicated, um, and I think on purpose, God's making it a cup of trembling. And both sides have done things that we as Christians would go are wrong. But we do believe that God has given the land to Israel, and we do believe that a lot of this is going to lead to the, the war of Gog and Magog that will happen in the very end. So, uh, we have a question from Matthew. Matthew says, question, um, hello, Pastor Robert, can you give some biblical context of warnings of Christians engaging in conflict, please? Okay, so... Um, what kind of conflict are you talking about, Matthew, when you say in conflict? Um, biblical context of warnings for Christians engaging in conflict. First of all, I think of all of the passages that tell us to be, Ephesians 4.32, be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, forgiven you. Second Timothy, um, where it says, the servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach. Um, that in, in Galatians 6, if anyone is overtaken in a sin, those of you who are spiritual, go to such a one in a spirit of gentleness and considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. So the Bible is full of the fruit of the Spirit and the way that Christians are supposed to react and respond. And we are not supposed to argue. So, if you're talking about conflict in the sense of arguing, Matthew, which I would, if I'm, if I'm talking about the wrong area, then let me know, because there can be other areas of conflict, then we're not supposed to have that. And that's one of the reasons I tell people, I don't want to argue. I don't want to argue with you. If you want to let me know what you believe, and, and maybe I'll hear something that will give me pause and make me consider what I believe, or if you want to know why I believe what I believe, um, you guys that have been listening to these Q&As for a while know that I've got um, a shelf in my mind. I took that from Pastor Chuck Smith for further information that I haven't made a 100% decision on yet. And I probably will have that sh- things on that shelf until you know I go to be with the Lord when I can have some of those questions um, answered then. Um, so I don't, there are things that we don't divide over. And I don't, I don't like conflict. Sometimes you've got to deal with it because people will push you in a corner that you have to end up dealing with it. But you always want to have a spirit of meekness, of gentleness, not arguing, not quarreling, being kind to one another, the fruit of the Spirit being evident. And when this is out of, when this isn't there, when Christians attack other Christians, especially, or even when you're dealing with non-believers, with atheists or, or people who are critical of Christianity, you want to be kind, even though they might not be. You want to be kind. You don't want to build straw men to tear them down. You want to be fair and honest to people. So, conflict, um, there will always be conflict. It's how we approach that conflict. Do we approach it to argue? Do we approach it to to give the sides uh, that are that are up? So, um, 
again, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Um, if you have a, a follow-up, then you go ahead and please, please ask that if you have a little bit more detail on what you mean by conflict. Um, so Stephen has a follow-up. He says it's more to disprove post-trib. Okay, so we're, ta we're talking about the marriage supper of the lamb. Um, and so if you have the marriage supper of the lamb before, so I see the argument now. So what they're saying is, is that in, in Revelation 19, before Jesus returns, you have the marriage supper of the lamb. So then how could you have people raptured and at the end of the tribulation period and be part of the marriage supper of the lamb? Why would God have the marriage supper of the lamb when you haven't had the resurrection yet? Remember, the rapture is the resurrection. And that's why when people say, that's why people say there is no rapture. And I've seen more videos like this and I'm seeing people who are more committed to fighting against the idea of being caught up and meeting the Lord in the air, but you're fighting against scripture when you do that. You can come up with all of your arguments. You can make it look silly if you want to. You can straw man it and tear it down, but the Bible says we are going to meet him in the air, those who are alive and remain. And no matter what you believe, you believe that Jesus is going to return. And when he returns, you believe there will be a resurrection and there will be a transformation of those who are alive, that he is going to return for the living and the dead. Those that are alive when he returns, whether you believe in a pre-trib rapture, mid-trib rapture, or post-trib rapture, are, are going to be transferred alive. I'm, I, behold, I give you a mystery. We're not all going to sleep, but some of us are going to be changed in a moment and twinkling of an eye. No wonder there's confusion about it because it's, it's a mystery, but we're all going to be changed. And so, no matter what you believe, no matter what your theology is, unless you deny the return of Jesus and the resurrection of the saints, then you believe there are people who are going to be alive that are going to have to be transformed. That's the, that is the rapture. I wish it wasn't called the rapture, separate from the resurrection. Um, I like to call it the gathering, and it includes those who are dead that will be gathered to the Lord and those who are alive as well. Um, it's been suggested by some here that we would call it the res rapture because that kind of a connection, because we forget that it's a resurrection. We make it an independent. The rapture is a smaller event that happens in a larger event, the resurrection. And the rapture is part of the resurrection. It's just as this happen, is the resurrection broken up into the resurrection of Christ, the, the rapture resurrection before the tribulation period, and then another resurrection at the end of the tribulation period that make up the first resurrection. That's really what the question is. And um, I can see why their argument would say, why would God have the marriage supper of the Lamb if there hasn't been a resurrection and a rapture? I actually think it's a good argument. Now that you bring it up, uh, I've never thought about it that way. But thank you very much for bringing that up, Stephen. It's more to disprove uh, post-trib, which I now I understand. I understand how it can be used in a positive way too for the resurrection. I mean, for a, a pre-trib or mid or pre-wrath, because all of those would fit with that argument. It's just the, the, the post-trib um, that is put off. All right. Um, so let's see, what do we got here? We got a question from Kimberly Fox. Kimberly, good to see you. Good to have you here. Kimberly says, uh, Pastor, can you explain prayer? I've seen scripture that says to pray and keep on praying, plead, ask, and keep on asking, yet be humble, bold, confident, and do not ask and ask as the Gentiles do. Okay, yeah, I would love to, Kimberly. So, um, Jesus said, ask 
and keep asking. I've got your, your comment section down. I get your comment down here as I'm making out of my way through it. So Jesus said, ask and keep asking, knock and keep knocking, uh, seek and keep seeking, and you will find, you'll receive, and the door will be opened for you. And we are. he also gave two parables to pray and not grow weary in prayer, to, to persist in prayer. That was the parable of the unjust judge, who when, only when the woman persists does the unjust judge rule for her, and the parable of what I call the annoyed neighbor, when only the neighbor persists does he get bread for his friends, visitors that have visited, so he has to be persistent in prayer. So the Bible teaches that we would pray consistently, that we would pray until we receive our prayer, that we would ask and keep asking. There are um, other passages that would connect to us continuing in prayer. I know that Jesus prayed three times in the Garden of Gethsemane that the cup would be taken from him. Paul prayed three times that his thorn in the flesh would be taken away. And finally, God said, my grace is sufficient for you, which is to say that he did not heal him of his thorn in the flesh that was given to him, which is interesting because Paul as an apostle had the ability to be able to heal. And instead of healing Timothy, he said, take a little wine for your stomach, which was interesting as well. But um, so when do we, we pray and when do we stop praying for something? When we hear something from God, when time doesn't permit anymore, Jesus was gonna be arrested. He couldn't continue on, even though he sat with the disciples for a while who were asleep before they came and they arrested him. But we are supposed to continue to pray. Now, what about the part that says, don't ask and ask like the Gentiles do? So it never says that, Kimberly. And let me see if I can go find it and read it to you. It is Matthew, I think Matthew chapter five, and I'm going to probably have to go near the end of the chapter where Jesus is talking about prayer. Um, so, move your enemies. Maybe it's in the beginning of the chapter. I don't think it is. Maybe it's actually six. Let me go to six. I think it might be Matthew six. Oops, not seven. Six. Um... Okay, yeah, let's just go through this passage here a little bit and see if we can't answer these questions uh, by looking at the word. So this is Matthew 6, 5, Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount, talking about prayer. And when you pray, you shall not like be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the street, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room. And when you have shut your door, pray to your father who is in secret place, and your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. So we're told that God's going to reward us when we go secretly and seek him. And not to pray publicly to be seen by men. It doesn't mean that we don't ever pray publicly. In the book of Acts, they continued in prayers, in fellowship, in the apostles' doctrine, and breaking bread from house to house. So prayer is a part of it, but the majority of our prayer is to be done in secret. And I also say that when you make a show of praying for your food when you're in a restaurant, that can be problematic. Maybe you're making a stand for Christ and who you are, but Jesus said, don't pray to be seen by men. And so I just, I, I like to make it a quick prayer. I'll pray for our food in public. Just make it a quick prayer. Don't make the waiter stand there with whatever for, for a long period of time while you're praying for all of these things during the food. I don't think that, that, I think that goes against what Jesus said here. I also have a question about people that go and take a knee and pray in the end zone. Um, I'm, not, I'm, I'm glad that they're making a stand for Christ. That's good. I wish they would do it in a different way. 
because Jesus said, when you pray, don't pray to be seen by men. And they're trying to make a statement about Christ by being seen by men. And then it says, and when you pray, do not use vain repetition as the heathens do. Now, here's, your, here's where you were saying. He doesn't say, don't keep asking and asking. He says, don't use vain repetition as the heathens do, for they think they will be heard by their many words. This vain repetition is the same little prayer, like the prayer of Jabez over and over and over again or our Father, or Hail Mary, or some other prayer that you just say over and over again, some prayer that somebody writes that you memorize and you say over and over again thinking you're going to be heard for your many words. Or, um, it's, that's vain repetition. It's not just praying for the same thing, because if you pray, like if you pray the Lord's Prayer, and you pray it meaning it every day, our Father who art in heaven, you're praying for a, your, your heavenly Father who has different perspective in heaven. Hallowed be your name. You're holy. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now you're praying for his will and not our will to be done. And if you mean that every time you pay, pray it, it is repetition. Lie right? It says vain repetition here. It is repetition, but it's not vain. Vain repetition is what I did when I was a kid and my mom taught me to pray a prayer to go to sleep at night. She'd say, go say your prayers. So I'd go in. She said, have you said your prayers yet? No, I haven't said them. Well, go ahead. So we'd bow our head. And I'd say, now I lay me down to sleep. Pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I die before I wake, I pray the Lord the soul my take, my soul to take. Not realizing what I was praying until years later that I was praying that I wouldn't die every night. But I could also say it extremely fast. Now I lay me down to sleep. Pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I die before I wake, pray the Lord my soul to take. And that was vain repetition. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know what it was thinking. That's, that's not... This is what Jesus was, was talking against here. That's what the heathens do. There's the Hindu prayer wheel. There's um, people that just pray things over and over again. Now, if you pray a prayer and you mean it like the Lord's Prayer, because he goes into that next. He says, um, therefore, do not be like them, for your Father knows the things you need before you ask him. Uh, in this manner, pray. So pray like this. doesn't necessarily pray this prayer, but in this manner, pray. So, yes, we are supposed to be persistent in prayer, Kimberly. The Bible teaches that clearly. And when it says don't have vain repetition, the repetition isn't the problem. The vain is the problem. You can pray for the same thing as long as you really mean it. It's not vain. You're not just saying it thinking that you're going to be heard for your many words, but you're saying it really meaning it. And if you can pray, the Bible says the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. So effective, we're right with God, we've got a right relationship with Him. The effective fervent, we have passion behind it. We're not just saying a prayer, you know, and not thinking about what we're saying. And the the and, and your own righteousness before Christ. The effective fervent prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. All right. Thank you, Kimberly, for that question. Um hope that uh hope that answers things. Um so we have another question from Kimberly. Let me see where we are here. All right, let's go ahead and take this. Uh, Kimberly says, in the Ukraine war, everything seems to be um, revolving around Jews and Nazis. Whether true or not, it's accusations. We can see the world is involved in this. It's always, uh, it always, but is it biblical? Okay, so I'm just out of the loop here, Kimberly. I, you know, I don't, I don't watch a lot of news. I don't watch a lot at all. Um, I had no idea that there was anything with Jews and Nazis being brought up about the war in Ukraine. I don't understand it. I don't understand how, you know, um, communism was against was against um, 
was against the Nazis, the, the, the um, Russian communism, or the USSR back in those days, was against the, the Nazis. Um, I'm not sure exactly how many Jews are in Ukraine and how and the the Jews in Russia are I just they're not thought of as being really well there's anti-semitism like there is all around the world uh, taking place against them so I'm sorry but I'm just out of the loop I don't I don't know what that's about um, hopefully I'll remember uh, later on to look that up all right thank you thank you Kimberly um, so Brandon has a follow-up on his question uh, Brandon says can you read the scriptures I typed in? That's where my confusion comes from. Verse 32 says, this refers to Christ and the church. All right, let me, I'm not sure what um, passages you typed in, Brandon. Let me go back and take a look. Did I miss some? Let me just see if I can find that. It may take me a moment to scroll back up here. Let's see. Sorry, I didn't see them. Um, I don't know what reference verse 32 is for, Brandon. Sorry. Um, all right, so here we go. Let me bring this in uh, and we, uh, we get the scriptures here. So Brandon says, I am sure it doesn't, but the scriptures indicate that Christ had to leave both father and mother. Yeah, um, so yeah, I didn't read it because I just thought it's a very familiar passage, right? So Ephesians 5 and... Um, and Let's see, Ephesians 5, and this isn't the idea that Jesus had to leave a mother somehow. 5, 31 and 32. So, um, let's go ahead and look at this. So, this is Ephesians 5, 31. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to a wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, but speaks concerning Christ and the church. Nevertheless, let each one of you, in particular, so love his own wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So the aspect of verse 32, this is a great mystery, but I'm speaking concerning Christ and the church, is that we are to love our wives as Christ so loves the church. Let me just go back over here and um, let me go back here a little bit and get to the, get to the context of this. Um, let's see. Here we go. So this is the context of it. This is verse 25. Husbands, love your wives as Christ so loves the church. So there's a comparison to husbands loving their wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself for her. So you're supposed to give yourself to your wife that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the word. And then he might present her to himself a glorious church. So Christ presenting us as a glorious church, having no spot or wrinkle nor such thing, that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourished and cherished it, just as the Lord does the church. For we are members of his body of the flesh and one of his um, and one and one and of his bones. And then the, the passage. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is the great mystery, but I'm speaking concerning Christ and the church. Okay? So, yeah, the passage doesn't give any indication that there is a mother in heaven. It's a comparison of Christ and the, the church, not of leaving father and mother. So the context isn't about, in this passage, isn't about leaving your father and mother. If that was the context, if that's what he was talking about, 
if somehow Paul had gotten into a conversation about the necessity of leaving your father and mother and the two joining together and becoming one flesh, then Christ being, speaking of Christ in the church, then you could maybe make that implication. But that's not the context. The context is husbands love your wives as Christ loves the church and gave himself for her. And so he goes back to quoted a verse for the family of how you choose a wife for this reason, or how you're married, for this reason a man and a wife should leave their father and mother, not saying that Jesus loved a father and mother. Uh, it cannot be, um, even by implication, the context won't allow you to be able to go there and make that leap. Um, we have to determine what was being meant by what was being said and why the points were being brought out. And when a metaphor is being used, like, or a comparison like Christ in the church and a man and a wife, we know by, this, that by just the fact that there is a comparison that some things are going to be different. It's not exactly the same. There are similarities. Those similarities are brought out and then we're told to, 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 to die to ourselves or to give ourselves to her, to our wife, but it's not a 100% comparison. And when people do that, that's a mistake. A lot of times people will read things that are very um, exact or read them very exact. Um, I think uh, the words are um, eloquation and loquation. Is that right? Am I saying it right? Loquation and eloquation. So loquation is when you take words for what they say. So in other words, you would say, it's raining cats and dogs. And somebody would say, that's impossible. You're taking it too, too exact. That's impossible. You can't rain cats and dogs. But you guys know what I mean when I'm saying it. it's raining outside like crazy. And so you look at what I meant, not what the words say. And that's important when you're looking at the context and making your way through scripture. Because you can twist it to say whatever you want to say if you get away from what was meant by the words that were said. And you find this a, a lot with, um, with passages that are in the Bible, with things that Jesus said. When Jesus talks about um, not cutting off your hand, you got to look at what he means, not what he said, or about cutting off your hand or plucking out your eye. You've got to look at what he means. You got to look at the illuquation, if I'm saying that correct, instead of the loquation. You got to look at, instead of thinking he's telling people to cut their hands off, he's saying get radical about dealing with sin so you don't end up paying the price later on. And we could go on talking about different things that Jesus said because Jesus often used words like that that meant something different. I, I think of another one. No man knows the day or the hour. So people want to go, well, that means we can know the two-day period because no one knows the day or the hour. No, what he means is no one knows the time of his return. It's a, that's an idiom, which means you don't know when he's going to return. Not that you can know the week or the month or the year, like people try to do when they want to set dates. It just amazes me, but that's the kind of mistake that would be made here if someone said, well, it says that they were to leave father and mother and that he's speaking of Christ. When you're overlooking the larger section of the passage in the context, which is of comparing how men should treat their wives like Christ treated the church, then you're, that would be, that would I use this term often, but it would be doing violence to the text. And you could by no means ever come to that there's a mother in heaven that Jesus had to leave. 
not by its context. All right. So thank you very much, Brandon. I appreciate that. Let me try to get back down to where I was. Um, and uh, wow, time's going by so fast. All right. Uh, still looking, Kimberly, um, if you can, yeah, I, you know what? I'll look up. I just hope I remember this to look up um, how Nazis and the Nazi Jews are connected. Um, so there, I, there we go. So I'm back to Brandon's asking to read that passage. Hopefully that helps, Brandon. Um, it was a little different passage than I thought it was. I thought it was a little bit earlier on, by the way. I thought it was where it says, husband's love, verse 25, <clears throat> instead of 31. All right. Uh, if you are new here, uh, good to have you. If you want to ask a question, uh, then the comment section is open below. You put a Q or a question mark, mark or a question or the word question in front of it and write out your question and then reread it. Make sure it makes sense. People have done a great job of that today. Uh, and then go ahead and submit it. When you write something out, you almost always have to go back and edit it at least one time. For me, I have to edit things three or four times, maybe maybe more. I have to have somebody else edit it for me. Um, so uh, we have come to the end of our questions today, a little bit early. I'll just cover a couple of things, giving you an opportunity. If you have a question that you want to ask, it's open now. Uh, you can ask that question. We have a service tonight that starts at six o'clock and um, we are in our study of the book of Acts and we are in chapter eight where there's persecution that causes the gospel to be spread around the world. And so we're looking at God's plan for difficulties, how God uses difficulties, how, how suffering, how we can have suffering and God can turn that around for the good and how God used it in the early church. So we see the principle of how it happens in the early church and we're going to talk about what's going on. It's a line by line, verse by verse study through the book of Acts. We're in chapter eight. We're just starting next week. We'll be talking about the gift of the Holy Spirit given to the Samaritans. Um, it's been called the Samaritan Day of Pentecost. Uh, Acts chapter 10, the Gentile Day of Pentecost. Then, of course, Acts chapter 2 was to be the day of Pentecost. The Holy Spirit was given to the church, which was Jewish at the time. So that's going to be at um, the service to start at 6 o'clock tonight, the worship for about 20, 25 minutes, and then I'll be teaching. And so if you want to join us, uh, you can do that online. If you're here, it's the East Campus on Saturday nights, and then we have both East and West Campus teachings tomorrow morning. All right? Um so uh, let me see, Kimberly. Um, is repentance a gift we are led? Is repentance a gift we are are led? I'm not sure, Kimberly, what that question is. I'm sorry. Um, I wish I I wish I did. So um, we are given maybe. So there is a there's a passage that talks about the gift of that would be granted the gift of repentance. Am I right? I just can't get my mind around that now. I'm not sure exactly what you're asking. Um, thank you, Kimberly. I appreciate you too, Kimberly. Uh, Empress Kimberly, uh, I appreciate you too. Um, so is repentance a gift? Uh, I think in a larger picture, yes. We are given a chance to repent. Uh, all the way back in the law, God gave them those 613 laws they were supposed to keep. But then if you broke them, there was a sacrifice that could be given, blood could be shed, and you could have your sins covered or forgiven. Jesus covers our sins 
and we can repent and have our sins forgiven. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So it is a gift. Can you imagine if laws were given or if we were made right with Christ, but there was no forgiveness for anything that we would do wrong when we still have struggles. The man, the flesh is still there. The, the sin nature is still inside of us. It hasn't been taken away. Um, if you mean, does God give the gift of repentance to some people? Um, I, I think that would fall, that would start to get into the whole Calvinist debate on whether or not God is choosing to give some repentance and choosing not to give others repentance. But I'm not going to get into all of that because I'm not sure what exactly you're asking, uh, Kimberly. All right. So thank you very much. Um, uh, so Jari says, talking about those in the world who were living a lifestyle of cannibalism before colonization, which colonization definitely brought a lot of good things into those areas. One of them was to get rid of cannibalism. One tribe being eaten by another one. Um, follow up, how did they um, How did they go from civilized to uncivilized? I think that's just human nature, Jari. So I think that how do we go, how as the world is continued on, is the world getting worse and worse? How is it that, that we are, and we see it, we saw it in the Greek culture before it collapsed, we saw it in the Roman culture before it collapsed, um, we see it in the United States today that it's just getting worse and worse. I think that we just go into sin and, and we don't care. And so we are no longer civilized. All right. So just a couple of minutes left. Um, I'm just going to go ahead and wrap it up here. Uh, if um, you have questions for the next Q&A, you can go ahead and put them in now. And um, I'm, I'll be looking at the end of this to see if anybody added a question in for our next Q&A. Um, but it's been good spending this time with you. Stay close to Jesus. Uh, love him. Serve him. Delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. Walk in the spirit. And you won't fulfill the lust of the flesh. Um, remember that if you sow to the flesh, from the flesh you'll reap corruption. But you sow to the spirit, from the spirit you will reap life. And may God use this time that you spent here with us today to bless you and deepen uh, your walk with him. All right. Uh, yeah, I do. I can skip words. Did I skip words? So, yeah, I can do that. Um, but anyway, yeah, so um, I'm just looking back here at the last question. Is repentance a gift or are we are we led? All right, you're right. Is repentance a gift or are we led? Are we led to repentance or does God just give us repentance? So thanks, Kimberly, for that clarification. Sorry about that. Um, yeah, I think um, I think we do get, I think we do get um, that God does lead us to repentance, that when we move towards him, he moves towards us, and that a gift of repentance can be given. Um, we'll talk about it more later on. All right, we're coming to the end here. It's good to see you guys. I love you. Stay close to Jesus. Uh, we'll have a service here in about an hour. I look forward to covering the scriptures with you, and we will see you Wednesday, Lord willing, at four o'clock. All right, so I'm out. Love you guys. We'll see you later on.